Chapter 4 of The Soul of the Indian by Charles A. Eastman, Oyesa. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 Barbarism and the Moral Code. Silence, the cornerstone of character. Basic ideas of morality. Give all or nothing. Rules of honorable warfare. An Indian conception of courage. Long before I ever heard of Christ or saw a white man, I had learned from an untutored woman the essence of morality. With the help of dear nature herself, she taught me things simple but of mighty import. I knew God. I perceived what goodness is. I saw and loved what is really beautiful. Civilization has not taught me anything better. As a child, I understood how to give. I have forgotten that grace since I became civilized. I lived the natural life, whereas I now live the artificial any pretty pebble was valuable to me then, every growing tree an object of reverence. Now I worship with a white man before a painted landscape whose value is estimated in dollars. Thus the Indian is reconstructed, as the natural rocks are ground to powder and made into artificial blocks which may be built into the walls of modern society. The first American mingled with his pride a singular humility. Spiritual arrogance was foreign to his nature and teaching. He never claimed the power of articulate speech was proof of superiority over the dumb creation. On the other hand, it is to him a perilous gift. He believes profoundly in silence, the sign of a perfect equilibrium. Silence is the absolute poise or balance of body, mind, and spirit. The man who preserves his selfhood ever calm and unshaken by the storms of existence, not a leaf, as it were, a stir on the tree, not a ripple upon the surface of shining pool, his, in the mind of the unlettered sage, is the ideal attitude and conduct of life. If you ask him, what is silence, he will answer, it is the great mystery. The holy silence is his voice. If you ask, what are the fruits of silence, he will say, they are self-control, true courage or endurance, patience, dignity, and reverence. Silence is the cornerstone of character. Guard your tongue in youth, said the old chief Wabasha, and in age you may mature a thought that will be of service to your people. The moment that man conceived of a perfect body, supple, symmetrical, graceful, and enduring, in that moment he had laid the foundation of a moral life. No man can hope to maintain such a temple of the spirit beyond the period of adolescence, unless he is able to curb his indulgence in the pleasure of the senses. Upon this truth the Indian built a rigid system of physical training, a social and moral code that was the law of his life. There was aroused in him as a child a high ideal of manly strength and beauty, the attainment of which must depend upon strict temperance in eating and in the sexual relation, together with severe and persistent exercise. He desired to be a worthy link in the generations, and that he might not destroy by his weakness that vigor and purity of blood which had been achieved at the cost of much self-denial by a long line of ancestors. He was required to fast from time to time for short periods and to work off his superfluous energy by means of hard running, swimming, and the vapor bath. The bodily fatigue thus induced, especially when coupled with a reduced diet, is a reliable cure for undue sexual desires. Personal modesty was early cultivated as a safeguard, together with a strong self-respect and pride of family and race. This was accomplished in part by keeping the child ever before the public eye from his birth onward. His entrance into the world, especially in the case of the firstborn, was often publicly announced by the herald, accompanied by a distribution of presents to the old and needy. 
The same thing occurred when he took his first step, when his ears were pierced, and when he shot his first game, so that his childish exploits and progress were known to the whole clan as to the larger family, and he grew into manhood with the saving sense of a reputation to sustain. The youth was encouraged to enlist early in the public service, and to develop a wholesome ambition for the honors of a leader and feastmaker, which can never be his unless he is truthful and generous, as well as brave and ever mindful of his personal chastity and honor. There were many ceremonial customs which had a distinct moral influence. The woman was rigidly secluded at certain periods, and the young husband was forbidden to approach his own wife when preparing for war or for any religious event. The public or tribal position of the Indian is entirely dependent upon his private virtue, and he is never permitted to forget that he does not live himself alone, but to his tribe and his clan. Thus habits of perfect self-control were early established and there were no unnatural conditions or complex temptations to beset him until he was met and overthrown by a stronger race. To keep the young men and women strictly to their honor, there were observed among us, within my own recollection, certain annual ceremonies of a semi-religious nature. One of the most impressive of these was the sacred feast of virgins, which, when given for the first time, was equivalent to the public announcement of a young girl's arrival at a marriageable age. The herald making the rounds of the teepee village would publish the feast something after this fashion. Pretty weasel woman, the daughter of Brave Bear, will kindle her first maiden's fire tomorrow. All ye who have never yielded to the pleading of man, who have not destroyed your innocency, you alone are invited, to proclaim anew before the sun and the earth, before your companions, and in the sight of the great mystery, the chastity and purity of your maidenhood. Come ye, all who have not known man." The whole village was at once aroused to the interest of the coming event, which was considered next to the sun dance and the great medicine dance in public importance. It always took place in midsummer when a number of different clans were gathered together for summer festivities, and was held in the center of the great circular encampment. Here two circles were described, one within the other, about a rudely heart-shaped rock which was touched with red paint, and upon either side of the rock there were thrust into the ground a knife and two arrows. The inner circle was for the maidens, and the outer one for the grandmothers or chaperones, who were supposed to have passed the climacteric. Upon the outskirts of the feast there was a great public gathering in which order was kept by certain warriors of highest reputation. Any man among the spectators might approach and challenge any young woman who he knew to be unworthy, but if the accuser failed to prove his charge, the warriors were accustomed to punish him severely. Each girl in turn approached the sacred rock and laid her hand upon it with all solemnity. This was her religious declaration of her virginity, her vow to remain pure until her marriage. If she should ever violate the maiden's oath, then welcome the keen knife and those sharp arrows. Our maidens were ambitious to attend a number of these feasts before marriage, and it sometimes happened that a girl was compelled to give one on account of gossip about her conduct. Then it was in the nature of a challenge to the scandal-mongers to prove their words. A similar feast was sometimes made by the young men, for whom the rules were even more strict, since no young man might attend this feast who had so much as spoken of love to a maiden. It was considered a high honor among us to have won some distinction in war in the chase, and above all to have been invited to a seat in the council before one had spoken to any girl save his own sister. It was our belief that the love of possessions is a weakness to be overcome. Its appeal is to the material part, and if allowed its way, it will in time disturb the spiritual balance of the man. Therefore the child must early learn the beauty of generosity. 
He is taught to give what he prizes most, and that he may taste the happiness of giving. He is made at an early age the family almoner. If a child is inclined to be grasping, or to cling to any of his little possessions, legends are related to him, telling of the contempt and disgrace falling upon the ungenerous and mean man. Public giving is a part of every important ceremony. It properly belongs to the celebration of birth, marriage, and death, and is observed whenever it is desired to do special honor to any person or event. Upon such occasions, it is common to give to the point of utter impoverishment. The Indian, in his simplicity, literally gives away all that he has to relatives, to guests of another tribe or clan, but above all, to the poor and the aged, from whom he can hope for no return. Finally, the gift to the great mystery. The religious offering may be of little value in itself, but to the giver's own thought it should carry the meaning and reward of true sacrifice. Orphans in the aged are invariably cared for, not only by the next of kin, but by the whole clan. It is the loving parent's pride to have his daughters visit the unfortunate and the helpless, carry them food, comb their hair, and mend their garments. The name Winona, bestowed upon the eldest daughter, distinctly implies all this, and a girl who failed in her charitable duties was held to be unworthy of the name. The man who is a skillful hunter, and whose wife is alive to her opportunities, makes many feasts, to which he is careful to invite the older men of his clan, recognizing that they have outlived their period of greatest activity, and now love nothing so well as to eat in good company, and to live over the past. The old men, for their part, do their best to requite his liberality with the little speech in which they are apt to relate the brave and generous deeds of their host's ancestors, finally congratulating him upon being a worthy successor of an honorable line. Thus his reputation is won as a hunter and a feastmaker, and almost as famous in his way as the great warrior is he who has a recognized name and standing as a man of peace. The true Indian sets no price upon either his property or his labor. His generosity is only limited by his strength and ability. He regards it as an honor to be selected for a difficult or dangerous service, and would think it a shame to ask for any reward, saying rather, Let him who I serve express his thanks according to his own bringing up and his sense of honor. Nevertheless, he recognizes rights and property. To steal from one of his own tribe would be indeed disgrace, and if discovered, the name of Wamanan, or thief, is fixed upon him forever as an unalterable stigma. The only exception to the rule is in the case of food, which is always free to the hungry if there is none by to offer it. Other protection than the moral law, there could not be in an Indian community where there were neither locks nor doors, and everything was open and easy of access to all comers. The property of the enemy is spoil of war, and it is always allowable to confiscate it if possible. However, in the old days there was not much plunder. Before the coming of the white man, there was in fact little temptation or opportunity to despoil the enemy, but in modern times the practice of stealing horses from hostile tribes has become common, and is thought far from dishonorable. Warfare we regarded as an institution of the great mystery. An organized tournament, or trial of courage and skill, with elaborate rules and counts for the coveted honor of the eagle feather. It was held to develop the quality of manliness, and its motive was chivalric or patriotic, but never the desire for territorial aggrandizement or the overthrow of a brother nation. It was common in early times for a battle or skirmish to last all day, with great display of daring and horsemanship, but with scarcely more killed and wounded than may be carried from the field during a university game of football. 
The slayer of a man in battle was expected to mourn for thirty days, blackening his face and loosening his hair according to the custom. He of course considered it no sin to take the life of an enemy, and this ceremonial mourning was a sign of reverence for the departed spirit. The killing in war of non-combatants, such as women and children, is partly explained by the fact that in savage life the woman without husband or protector is in a pitiable case, and it was supposed that the spirit of the warrior would be better content if no widow or orphans were left to suffer want as well as to weep. A scalp might originally be taken by the leader of the war party only and at that period no other mutilation was practiced. It was a small lock, not more than three inches square, which was carried only during the thirty days celebration of a victory and afterward given religious burial. Wanton cruelties and the more barbarous customs of war were greatly intensified with the coming of the white man, who brought with him fiery liquor and deadly weapons, aroused the Indian's worst passions, provoking in him revenge and cupidity, and even offered bounties for the scalps of innocent men, women, and children. Murder within the tribe was a grave offense to be atoned for as the council might decree, and it often happened that the slayer was called upon to pay the penalty with his own life. He made no attempt to escape or evade justice. That the crime was committed in the depths of the forest or at dead of night, witnessed by no human eye, made no difference to his mind. He was thoroughly convinced that all is known to the great mystery, and hence did not hesitate to give himself up to stand his trial by the old and wise men of the victim's clan. His own family and clan might by no means attempt to excuse or to defend him, but his judges took all the known circumstances into consideration, and if it appeared that he slew in self-defense or that the provocation was severe, he might be set free after a thirty days period of mourning and solitude. Otherwise, the murdered man's next of kin were authorized to take his life, and if they refrained from doing so, as often happened, he remained an outcast from the clan. A willful murder was a rare occurrence before the days of whiskey and drunken rose, for we were not a violent or quarrelsome people. It is well remembered that Crow Dog, who killed the Sioux chief Spotted Tail in 1881, calmly surrendered himself and was tried and convicted by the courts in South Dakota. After his conviction he was permitted remarkable liberty in prison, such as perhaps no white man has ever enjoyed when under the sentence of death. The cause of his act was a solemn commission received from his people nearly thirty years earlier, at the time that Spotted Tail usurped the chieftainship by the aid of the military whom he had aided. Crow Dog was under a vow to slay the chief, in case he ever betrayed or disgraced the name of the Brule Sioux. There is no doubt that he had committed crimes both public and private, having been guilty of misuse of office as well as of gross offenses against morality, Therefore his death was not a matter of personal vengeance, but of just retribution. A few days before Crow Dog was to be executed, he asked permission to visit his home and say farewell to his wife and twin boys, then nine and ten years old. Strange to say, the request was granted, and the condemned man sent home under escort of the deputy sheriff, who remained at the Indian agency, merely telling his prisoner to report there on the following day. When he did not appear at the time set, the sheriff dispatched the Indian police after him. They did not find him, and his wife simply said that Crow Dog had desired to ride alone to the prison, and would reach there on the day appointed. All doubt was removed the next day by a telegram from Rapid City, 200 miles distant, saying Crow Dog has just reported here. The incident drew public attention to the Indian murderer, with the unexpected result that the case was reopened and Crow Dog acquitted. 
He still lives, a well-preserved man of about 75 years, and is much respected among his own people. It is said that in the very early days, lying was a capital offense among us, believing that the deliberate liar is capable of committing any crime behind the screen of cowardly untruth and double-dealing. The destroyer of mutual confidence was summarily put to death that the evil might go no further. Even the worst enemies of the Indian, those who accuse him of treachery, bloodthirstiness, cruelty, and lust, have not denied his courage, but in their minds it is a courage that is ignorant, brutal, and fantastic. His own conception of bravery makes of it high moral virtue, for to him it consists not so much in aggressive self-assertion as in absolute self-control. The truly brave man, we contend, yields neither to fear nor anger, desire nor agony. He is at all times master of himself. His courage rises to the heights of chivalry, patriotism, and real heroism. Let neither cold, hunger, nor pain, nor the fear of them, neither the bristling teeth of danger, nor the very jaws of death itself, prevent you from doing a good deed, said an old chief to a scout who was about to seek the buffalo in midwinter for the relief of a starving people. This was his childlike conception of courage. End of chapter 4